Good morning, church. <laughs> you all look very festive this morning, ready for Christmas. Um, this morning's scripture, um, this passage may not feel the most Christmassy, but we'll see how this shapes Christmas for all of us. Hear the word of the Lord, and please remain standing as you are able. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths of me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet, I can count all of my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You have rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him. And stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. For he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. And he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. For you come my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nation, nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship, before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the ones who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn, that he has done it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Let's pray together. 
As we rest in that psalm, God, we are aware of its heaviness and its beauty. Would you guide us together today to see how intricately interwoven the words of that ancient psalmist speak to the ancient longings of our hearts and meet us in the depths of our humanity to guide us to new heights and firmer hope. God, only your spirit can open our eyes. You have gone to great lengths to communicate your deep love to us. And yet still, God, we are without power to change our own hearts. Awaken us. Amidst all the different responsibilities, the Christmas lists that still await us, the parties or the questions, the pains that still are knocking on the doors of our imaginations in this very moment. May we be attentive to you. May we feel you. And even in the silence, even in the spaces of confusion, may we trust you. All by the power of your spirit. May it be so. In Jesus' name, all God's people pray. Amen. Amen. Well, <clears throat> one of my favorite movies, uh, I watch it every year, is Home Alone. I mean, every year. Maybe multiple times every year. Maybe even sometimes in July. Um, <clears throat> it is just one of those movies. And I feel like if you've been around for a while, this one will show up in a like Advent homily almost every year. So if you've been around for a minute, you're like, here he goes again. Yeah, okay. But here's why. Uh, one, I just love the various catchphrases, right? Keep the change, you filthy animal. Like there's just... <laughs> So much gold, and each year my kids get older, they're seeing more, right? It's before it was just like how cool the traps were, and now there's like relational dynamics. But I, I really think what I really love about this, or at least what I'm seeing afresh this year, is just how it reveals the tension and some of the deepest struggles of humanity. You know, it, it begins, right, with Kevin, and he's at home with all of his family. I mean, in many ways, this is many people's dream, right? He's got both of his parents at home. He's got some siblings. Somehow his dad does something that is like gets them a ton of money, right? I, nobody knows what he does. Mr. McAllister, right? Like he makes so much money that his, his brother and his wife and like all their kids, they're all there and such, you know, that they're spending $200 on pizza just for the night. I mean, they're just, ex there's all this hustle and bustle. And yet, Kevin feels utterly alone, right? There's this iconic moment where he goes up the stairs because he's been dismissed from the whole family. And he goes, this house is so full of people, I am sick. When I grow up and get married, I'm living alone, right? Like, <laughs> I'm living alone. He's like stomping his feet, right? He sees the gaze of just everybody who's supposed to be close to him, and he's the butt of the joke. He feels isolated, and it's suffocating. He has people around him, but he feels utterly alone. And so what does he wish for? I wish my family would disappear. And they do by a strange turn of events, right? <laughs> the wind is blowing, the Santa wreath is rocking, all the things, right? I can see it. And he wakes up and he's in this house all alone. And at first, it's his dream come true, right? 
He's got all this freedom. He's putting on his dad's aftershave. It's all the things he dreamed he could do if nobody could tell him no, if nobody could get in his way, if he had full control of everything in his life, if he could do fully what he wanted to do every minute of every day. And he even defeats some really bad guys along the way, right? But then eventually there comes this moment where he goes to the Santa and he's like, I know how it works, right? You're not the real Santa, but you know the real one, right? And he goes up and he goes, this is what I want this year. Hold all my presents. I just want my family back. And even at the end, he goes, and if Santa has some extra time, my Uncle Frank too, right? Like he even includes like the worst of the worst, the person he has the deepest issues with. Because listen, he, he, he felt alone when he was around people who were supposed to love him but didn't. And then when he was alone, he longed for people. It's this constant tension, this longing that's deep within us that says we need someone to be seen. We, we want to be wanted. And he had all the freedom, but he felt alone, and it left him lonely and empty. He felt utterly forsaken in the end, deserted. And you can have that feeling... Listen, friends, you can have that feeling whether you're in a crowded living room with a bunch of family and extended family, and you can have that feeling at the end of a long day in the solitude of a studio of apart- studio apartment. Maybe some of you feel like if you've ever listened to Over the Rhine, they've got this marvelous song that's kind of dark, but it's a <laughs> it goes, strings of lights above the bed, curtains drawn and a glass of red, all I ever get for Christmas is blue. Saxophone on the radio recorded 40 years ago, all I ever get for Christmas is blue. And then you add in the midst of that any sort of challenge, any sort of difficulty, any sort of pain, whether it's chronic pain or acute pain or new pain or heartache or loneliness, you throw any of that in. And it's like paprika. It takes over the whole dish, (laughs) right? You just feel overwhelmed. It's like a boulder's on your chest, and you can find it difficult to breathe. And listen, this isn't just something for the melancholy. You know, psychologists, sociologists, pastors, journalists are noticing this this broader epidemic that's been going on for now quite a few years, and even before COVID, friends, this deep sense of loneliness and longing with a recognition that stuff or even other people can't fill. And with that comes a whole new layer of shame. Because if you are alone and you're in this studio apartment, to to reach out for help, feels like, man, I should have someone in my life at this point that I can call when I feel this way. And then if you don't, you feel shame for not having that person. If you're surrounded by what you thought was your dream, a spouse and maybe a couple kids and maybe some extended family and maybe even your parents and your spouse's parents are still alive. Let's just expand it out. Maybe even some extended family and it's like, wow. But then you feel utterly alone. You feel shame that that's not enough. There's shame that just breaks into the midst of all of that. Because there's something deep within us. It's just hungering and longing for someone to know us, to see us, and to be with us. And then we come to Christmas, 
And, we're, and that's where we are. We're talking about the promised king. That's the series we're, we're engaged in, walking across the Psalms, knowing that Jesus has come. The promised king has been here. And in the midst of all the cheer and all the songs, if you're feeling this way, it can eat, feel like eating a ghost pepper after you got diagnosed with an ulcer. Ooh, a little too much, maybe. But you get the feel like it doesn't feel great. Something that's meant to spark deeper joy feels like it's, it's causing deeper pain within you. And the fact that it's causing pain when it's meant to cause joy causes a whole spiraling effect of pain. And maybe you're here and you're like, oh, finally someone's saying what I feel. Well, when we come to Advent, the beauty of Advent is that you look back not to live in the past. You look back to Jesus' first coming so you know who and what to anticipate in his second. You look back to remember and to see, but that remembrance isn't meant to say, well, I'm going to live back there. It's meant to say, I'm going to equip you to know what to expect or how to live in the present in a, a sure and firm foundation of anticipation in the future. Not that you have every question answered, but you are able to have a firm foundation of anticipation. I think that's where the good news of what we're going to see in a text that feels like it was picked more from the Grinch than it was by Santa, right? Has some of the greatest news we need to hear. How? How does this text and what God and Christ has done for us meet us in that particular way? How does this help us anticipate the second coming, the second advent of Jesus? And here's what we're going to unpack today. And this is what's so crucial. And we all need to remember this. Our king knows our pain. He knows it. And not like in a cerebral, overly checkboxy kind of way where he can give you all the facts, but none of the relation. Our king actually can physically, emotionally, maybe this feels too earthy, but in a very real sense, feel what you feel. You know, there's a lot of questions in this psalm. Why? There's even anticipation as you're reading this how and what. And those questions may not get answered, either in this life or even into eternity. We want them to sometimes, but that doesn't necessarily mean that because we want something answered that it will be. Instead, what we're given is someone who knows you, who knows me, who knows us, actually better than we know ourselves in ways that we only are beginning to understand ourselves. And we're going to unpack exactly what that looks like. So if you haven't already, turn with me in your Bibles to Psalm 22. Psalm 22. And we're going to look at four particular ways that our king, this promised king, he knows our pain. So let's look at these first two verses again. Psalm 22, verses 1 and 2. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Now, I don't know how many of you are joining us for the promised king, kind of the formed life devotional. But one of the practices that I'd encourage you, whether you're doing this or not, that we've been having us as a church do together is on Mondays, we write out a portion of the psalm. You know how sometimes when you're like reading your Bible on your own and you're like, man, 
what did I just read? Anybody else have that feeling sometime? You're like, uh, I saw the words. Uh, don't know where they were about. Um, God help me. Right? And then you're like, move on. Uh, well, the beauty of this and that what we're trying to help, once again, incorporate some helpful practices to allow God's word to really penetrate our hearts is writing out the scripture causes a different sort of motor memory or motor engagement that causes you to slow down. And honestly, when I did this on Monday, it felt like writing a journal entry. When you're writing out verse one, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And realizing that came from my own hand and thinking back to moments in my life where that wasn't just me copying scripture, but that was my experience. That's where we find the psalmist here. And what's so fascinating about Psalm 22 is there are all these personal pronouns. I, me, and my, when they're often very corporate, they have a plural sense. Here, it is extremely personal. And often, up to verse 21 anyway, the place that community holds is antagonism, right? It's like they're around me, they're making fun of me, they're mocking me, they're attacking me. It is not a positive picture of community. It's a very much isolated experience. What you find is an existential crisis. And you see it right there. You don't even have to go past verse 1. My God, my God, this ownership. Yes, why have you forsaken me? <laughs> You're mine, but where are you? I trust you, but I'm experiencing despair. <laughs> I believe in you, but my experience is very different than my belief. This is a wrestling. And when you have that kind of experience that shows up in the everyday experience of your life, that can shake. I don't mean it necessarily crumbles, but it will definitely shake the most sturdy of faith. And then you continue on, verses 3 through 10. You know, I was talking with some friends earlier about sarcasm. It kind of feels sarcastic to some degree. Because the psalmist continues on, he says, yeah, you are holy, meaning like you answered all these prayers of my, uh, of my ancestors in Israel. Look, at, they cried out to you and you answered them. But me, I'm a worm. <laughs> I feel like a worm in my context right now. And, but I'm going to talk to myself again. I'm going to remember that actually you brought me into this world. You've been caring for me from the beginning. Like you see the wrestling in these verses 3 through 10, just very raw not very churchy. Like, I don't remember last time anybody got up here was like, today I feel like a worm. <laughs> like, it's just overflowing the wrestling he's experiencing. Now, what's fascinating, too, is that this psalm, if you go up to what's called the superscript up here, this little, it's kind of all caps, potentially, in your Bible, at least it is in mine, up next to the chapter 22, we see that this is a psalm of David. And what's so, I think what's such a gift of scripture, especially in the Psalms, is we see this ancient king of Israel. This guy had extraordinary authority. He's cried out to be a man after God's own heart. He makes some terrible, terrible, like horrendous mistakes, sins. And yet across the Psalms, these were meant to be the songbooks or the poetry for private prayers, for communal prayers, for the people of God. And David writes out, and you see experiences of loss, you see experiences of joy, experiences of anger, which is an emotion we often are afraid of. And it's all on display here. But what's really fascinating about Psalm 22 in particular is it seems when you really start to walk through this, that this is beyond anything that even David had ever experienced. It's beyond his own life 
experience, beyond something that feels extraordinarily corollary, meaning like this is something that we can look back in his own life and be like, oh, I see exactly when this happened. He seems to be speaking in hyperbole, but a lot of scholars have noted, and we're going to see this together, that what David writes in apparent hyperbole, meaning a bit overspeak to, to communicate the internal anguish he's experiencing, we see that his descendant much later by the name of Jesus experienced in reality. As Peter is recorded as of saying in Acts chapter 2, verses 30 and 31, being therefore a prophet, speaking of David, he foresaw and spoke of the Christ. So even the apostles, when Jesus, walking with them on the road to Emmaus, goes back to all the scriptures and he says, they're all pointing to me, the true Messiah, and what it was going to be like and who I am like. Peter goes on and now he's speaking before everybody in the temple. And he says, David was a prophet. He wasn't just a king. He was a prophet. And even here in Psalm 22, it's as if he is foreseeing the extraordinary suffering, the true promised and ultimate promised king would endure and here's where we can find extreme comfort, friends. Uh, and I was just sitting in this. Our king knows our pain farther. Whatever you're experiencing, wherever you are in life, our king knows our pain farther. Like David, here, he's speaking in a prophetic tone. Yes, there's probably elements or, or, or specific components to this that are speaking in very real ways to his own life, but he's speaking with a very prophetic tone as to how Jesus is going to fully live out this psalm. So whatever pain you're feeling, this isn't meant to minimize it, but I hope it, it creates a category of deeper hope that whatever you're going through, Jesus can relate to. And then some, wherever you think your pain will take you, Jesus is already there waiting for you. Wherever your pain, your heartache, your loss might bring you, Jesus is like, I know that world. I'm not obtuse. I'm not naive to what you're experiencing. I've gone farther than you've ever gone. And I'm not saying that to put you down or to minimize your pain, to bring you comfort. That I know what it feels like. So whatever you're feeling, we have a king who knows our pain way farther than you and me. I mean, Jesus himself saw himself living out this psalm. You, 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 sometimes we can th forget about this, but Jesus, growing up as a devout Jewish young man and then man, would have spent time studying the scriptures, memorizing the scriptures. Can you imagine when he was younger reading Psalm 22 and knowing, oh, this is my story? As he got to the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's asking for that cup to be passed from him. He knows it's the cup of Psalm 22, such that when he gets on the cross, the first words recorded on the cross are, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He quotes this Psalm. And listen, whenever you're reading your Bibles and someone quotes the Hebrew scriptures in the New Testament, it's not just like, just think about that one verse. What they're doing is they're trying to point you back to a whole chapter, to a whole section. They want you to take all of those categories and slam them right there. It's not just like, oh, that was a nice verse. Quote, he knows his Bible. No, it's like, Jesus, like, go back to Psalm 22. I'm living that out right now. And what's fascinating is that the gospel writers saw this too. 
Let me just give you a couple areas of correlation here, how the gospel writers are bringing this out. This is just a few, okay? So you see the taunting posture in verse 7, that all who see me mock me and they make mouths at me, they wag their heads. This shows up in Mark chapter 15, verse 29, and Matthew chapter 27, verse 39. The mocking words of verse 8, they show up in Matthew 27, verse 43. And you can write these down if you want to look it up later. You can email me either way. When he says he's dried up like a pot sherd in verse 15, that's like when a piece of pottery breaks and you have like a little fragment and it's just sitting there in the dust and the sand to the point that it's useless and it's all dried and coated because it's been sitting there unused. That's what he says his mouth and his tongue feels like. And when Jesus is on the cross in John chapter 19, verse 28, when he cries out, I thirst, he's bringing this imagery back to mind. When they're dividing garments here in verse 18 of our psalm, in Mark 15, 24, Matthew 27, 35, Luke 23, 34, and John 19, 24, it all goes back, and it's all pointing us back to this psalm to say this was not an accident. David was prophesying of a king, the true king, the promised king who would come after me, the one that God promised David back in 2 Samuel 7 would seat on his throne for all eternity. He has come to fulfill even the darkest of moments for you and for me. You see, the chaos of Psalm 22 only resonates with the chaos of the cross. And you even see this animalistic liturgy or language that's all over the place. You see dogs, the bulls of Bashan, which was like really nice uh, fields, and they were known for really big uh, bulls, by the way. Just a fun fact. You're like, oh, like, kind of like Kansas City bulls, right? Now, um, when you think of the West Bottoms and all the meat market and all that jazz. But here's the deal, like, all this animalistic imagery, what's going on? One of my mentors, Dr. Estes, he wrote the handbook on the, the wisdom books and the Psalms. He writes this, by combining multiple animal images, the psalmist paints a montage that pictures impressionistically, I love that, his horrific suffering. As a result, the reader is given the impression of the terror of cosmic anarchy brought to bear on one figure, a vision of what happens when evil breaks through the normal restraints of humanity because the restraining, correcting salvation and providence of God are absent. I mean, the poetic nature of this, the ratcheting up, that you're meant to feel is extraordinary. And that's not even to mention the emotional and spiritual weight that Jesus felt on the cross. This is just the physical components. All of history's sin laid on him. The weight of that, the traumatic dynamics of that. And so wherever you are this morning, whatever pain you brought this morning, thinking, you know what, I'll just push this off till January, <laughs> like we are with our credit card bills. Instead, take comfort, friends. We have a king who knows our pain farther. Not a competition, but a space of comfort. That he knows you, and he can step into that. Whatever it is you're experiencing, our king knows our pain farther, and he won't dismiss you. He won't act as if it's nothing. He sees as, as indeed something heavy that he himself has walked through. Which leads us to the second thing we need to know about our king who knows our pain. And this is what's so beautiful. Our king knows our pain finished. 
when you look at verse 21, you know, a lot of commentators and scholars will look at this and be like, okay, and this is something that scholars do. We look at a text, and I'm not saying I'm a scholar, but I'm put myself in that spot if I'm going to talk that way first person. You know, like, you <laughs> not a scholar, okay? <laughs> Golly, that felt weird. Um, <laughs> but they'll look at the text and they'll go, hmm, this feels really weird. There are categories called lament, where it's really dark and you're laying it all out. And then there are categories of extraordinary praise or declarative praise, where everything's going great. Here at verse 21, it's such a hard shift Maybe there were two psalms and they blended them together because this is so absurd how this is such a hard shift. The language, the grammar, the movement feels so abrupt. Surely these were two brought together. And honestly, the Hebrew brings like this drastic change where you're feeling this cry for deliverance and then suddenly, you have rescued me! <laughs> And even the Hebrew there, you know, people wrestle with different translations. It goes more like this. Save me from the mouth of the lion, from the horns of the wild oxen. And then the very final note of verse 21 is, you have rescued me. And then it goes into the praise. They're seeking to do Hebrew parallelism there and the Hebrew style of poetry. But what's so fascinating, when you come to this extraordinary frame that God has indeed delivered him. I think it's important you go down to verse 31. After he's gone through and said, I've been delivered, and I, I'm going to tell this to the brethren, the community, and then that's going to be told from generation to generation to generation to a generation that's not even born yet. They're going to talk about the deliverance that's happened in this particular moment. And then at the very end, we read in verse 31 that he has done it. Why is that significant? It's significant because in John chapter 19, verse 30, we see the very last words of Jesus are what? It is finished. In the midst of the darkest suffering of God on the cross, and we wonder what he's thinking about. What is he meditating on? The mystery of God's suffering for us. The very first words come from Psalm 22, and the very last words before he breathes his last are Psalm 22. He had a deep framework that he has finally and fully satisfied the picture of Psalm 22 of suffering for his kingdom. And not just a suffering that ends in hopelessness, but a suffering that ends in victory. A victory over sin and death. How? Through his own sin. Or no, through his own death. Not his own sin. Taking our sin. And through his own death, winning over sin and death. Now, why is this important? Why do we need to know that our king knows our pain finished? What's the first thought you have when something goes wrong? If you have a walking relationship with God, one of the first things is like, well, what did I do to deserve this? Right? How many times have you asked that? Your car breaks down. You get this extra bill. You get a bad diagnosis. You, God, what are, you, what are you doing? What did I do? We naturally start to feel like this is a quid pro quo relationship, that I've done something to deserve this, and if I just walk through this painful thing, it'll be a nice punishment, and it'll pay for whatever wrong I did. We do this without even thinking. It's very natural. But you know what? Jesus gets to step into that thought process. And he can say, whenever you begin to ask that question, what did I do to deserve this? And he goes, oh, I already paid for that. 
I already paid for that. Whatever suffering, whatever pain you're experiencing, it's not to pay for your salvation. It's not to pay for your redemption. It's not making up and now getting you back in relationship with God. I've already done that. It is finished. It has been done. The rescue has been accomplished by his death and his suffering, his separation on the cross. We never have to step into a painful, heartbreaking, loss-filled, grief-filled situation and go, God, what am I paying for with this? We step into it with a totally different frame saying, Jesus, you already paid for this. You see, when we belong to the king, it's already been done. And that's the beauty of Christmas, that that's why he came, was to win over sin and death. You know, there's this story around Christmas time of a farmer and carpenter. They were good buddies. And this farmer was trying to explain the beauties of the cross and what God and Christ has done for us to his friend, the carpenter. And the carpenter, and you know, He's asking a bunch of questions, and he goes, well, surely I have to add something. The farmer's like, no, it's all been done. It's been paid for on the cross. It's all done. He goes, well, surely I've got to do a little bit of something just to say thank you. I've got got to do something to add a little bit. And he goes, no. So eventually, he figured he'd do an object lesson. This is a good teacher move. Jesus does it all the time. And he tells his friend, he's like, listen, I've got this fence, but I've got this gate that got broke. I need you to build me a new gate. You're a carpenter. Build me a gate. He's like, okay. I'll make a gate. So he's spending so much time, and he builds this wonderful gift of a gate, and he goes and hangs it on the farmer's fence. And he says, now, what do you think of this gift? Isn't this a great gift? I spent so much time on this gate. Isn't it wonderful? The farmer comes out with an axe. He starts getting a little closer and just begins to chip away at it. He goes, what are you doing? You're ruining it. It was finished. He goes, no, I'm just making a couple improvements, going at it again and again until finally it's a pile of rubble. I don't know how their friendship lasted, but... He said, whenever we come to the finished work of Jesus and think we need to add something to it, we make a rubble of what he's already completed. Listen, we can come here and we can hear the cries of Jesus and say, he did it all for me, for you. And he came to do that for you and for me. To pay what is impossible. <laughs> to pay. Getting, I'm getting wacky up here. I'm throwing my notes everywhere. there's no amount of payment that we can bring to add to what Jesus has finished for us. And that's really where we land on the third point. Our king knows our pain for us. He doesn't just know it farther. He doesn't just know it finished, but he knows it for us. And I just think the order of things is fascinating. There are none of these details that are useless. The fact that these were first the words of David a king, a human. And then every human, as you read them, at some point in your life, the longer you live, you find deep resonance with those words. But then when God took on flesh, he took on the words of a human. He took on the words of David. He took on our sorry condition. He took on all of our pain. That was ours, not his first, but ours first. And he uttered these words, Words first spoken by a man then became the very word of God. And when he went to the cross and uttered them, he uttered them so that we have to never utter them again. We sang it this morning. Aaliyah brilliantly led us. 
to the song, Yet Not I. Not forsaken. We never have to fear of being forsaken again, even though we may feel it, even though we may have an imagination dynamic where we think he's not there. We can have utter confidence that our king knows our pain farther, that our king knows our pain finished, and he knows it for us. This is exactly what his name means in Matthew chapter 1. Jesus means he who saves us from our sins. His very name is communicating the suffering and the purpose that he came. And Luke, he begins in chapter 2, verse 7, talking about Jesus born, wrapped in swaddling cloths and laid in a manger. Then you get to chapter 23, verse 53, and Jesus' dead body is wrapped in a linen cloth and laid in a tomb. Luke is painting a whole picture that Jesus came to die. In his very birth, he's forecasting what is to come. You know, it was a couple weekends ago, my wife and I, we were able to go to Handel's Messiah, which was just a really sweet date night for us. We love Handel's Messiah so much. You know, it's a Christian or a Christmas tradition for so many. But what's so fascinating about the movements there is you begin with this anticipation and longing for him to come, and then he comes in his birth, and then it centers so much on the cross, which interestingly enough, as you think about our journey during Advent, Psalm 2 is quoted, Psalm 22 is quoted, but where it ends in the final movement is with this language of a king who died, a lamb on the throne. And he ends by quoting, and all the chorus stands and sings to close out all of Handel's Messiah, Revelation chapter 5, verse 12 through 14. Worthy is the lamb that was slain and hath redeemed us to God by his blood to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Blessing and honor, glory and power be unto him that sitteth upon the throne and unto the lamb forever and ever. Amen. That is the one. He's finished it, he's gone farther, and he's done it all for us. Now, if you're anything like me, I, I think, man, having something to hope for is really important. Having hope can get you through a dark season. And to have an anchored future because of the finished work of Jesus is a true gift. But there's also the question of, well, what about now? <laughs> like, do I have to white-knuckle my way through another white Christmas? Like, what, what do I do with this? And this is where I think it's really important. We've already been singing it this morning, so today is kind of an explanation of what you've already been singing. Not only does our king know our pain farther, not only does he know it finished, not only does he know it for us, but our king knows our pain with us. With us. You know, there are a lot of questions we have in life that we may not get answers to. But really, the story of Christmas is not to give us answers. The story of Christmas is to give us a person. And it may not take away all the pain and the hard way, heartache in the moment. And I can't tell you why certain things happen in your life. I can't, sometimes I don't even know the answers to certain things as to why they've happened in mine. But I do know that when God is with us and we have a recognition and a deep conviction of his presence, even in the midst of the darkest of night. Even the darkest of night, the psalmist says, is like light to him. And he can be there with us in that space. You know, there's a powerful preposition, if you know your English grammar. It's the word with. The word with is a really powerful word, isn't it? 
Sky Jathani, if you're looking for a good book to pick up, he's written a, a really great book on the with God life. And he says, so many times we define our lives with different prepositions when it comes to God. The about God life. Maybe the for God life. Or the from God life. But we have been designed for the with God life. This is all the way from the beginning. This is why he came to be with us in Emmanuel and all the way into eternity. His hope, his desire, his design is that we be with him. And so when we look in the manger, we see a king who doesn't just come for us, but come to be with us. And when he went to the cross, he died to remove every barrier that keeps him from us. That he might not just keep us from pain, but walk through the valley of the shadow of death. If you just read one more chapter over into Psalm 23. He's that kind of shepherd who's with us in the mountaintops and all the way in the valleys, no matter where we go. No matter what the worst moments of pain, the deepest areas of heartache, the most chronic realities of physical pain. Jesus wants us to know that he's with us in the midst of that pain. And so whether you're in the midst of family gatherings or you're alone this holiday season, I want you to invite your king, the king, to be with you in your pain. Invite the king to be with you in your pain. You don't have to be home alone in your pain this time of year. Even if you're in solitude, God in Christ is present with you. You can go through, here's a couple action steps, right? I'm always a big fan of getting real practical. If you walk out through our gallery, as Kelly brilliantly walked us through it last week, walk through the gallery, those who dream in the midst of sorrow. Allow the work and the journey to minister to your soul in whatever pain you're experiencing. Step into the, the practice of grieving that's available out there. Take your time. You don't have to bottle it up. It will leak out. <laughs> you don't have to bottle it up until January. He came to walk with us in it now. It's the beauty of Christmas. He came in the darkest of places to remind us he'll step into your darkest of places. He's not afraid. He's not ashamed. He's present. And it may not take away all the pain, but you sure don't have to Put all of your pain and stuff it in some stocking somewhere <laughs> for it to bubble out later. Instead, you can rest in the peace of God that we celebrate today, that meets us, that transcends understanding, because not because it takes away all the sadness, but simultaneously you can experience God's peace in the midst of your sadness. You can experience his peace in the midst of heartache, knowing that he's with you there, even if you continue to sing. And I, I love how the song from Over the Rhine ends, if you continue on. It says, white lights on the Christmas tree. Thank God you are here with me. All I ever get for Christmas is blue. <laughs> now, I don't think she's singing of God there, but I do think there's something brilliant about recognizing presence and the need of God with us, someone with us, walking with it. And yet we may still experience blueness, but the fact that he's with us, we can walk through it instead of avoid it or ignore it. So invite the king to be with you in your pain this Christmas. He's come once to pay for it finally. He's here with us now, and he will come again to pay for it or to be with us fully and finally. So let him in. He's waiting. He's waiting for you, and he's waiting for me. Let's pray together.
I'm just grateful for this psalm. I'm grateful for how you worked through King David. I'm grateful for how it pointed us to Jesus and how Jesus points back to David to remind us that this was not an accident, this wasn't a fluke, this wasn't him misstepping, but instead embodying what the true king experiences and doing it par excellence to the perfection, to the greatest degree. Offer us. Thank you that we can just be ourselves and bring the realities that we are in to you rather than stuffing them down or pushing them aside, knowing that you are strong enough to carry us with whatever we've brought. We love you, God. Thanks for loving us this much. Thanks for meeting us in this. We need you. don't want to rush past this, God. Because I know there's such a temptation to know that the sermon's over, that the service will soon be over, and it'll feel like nice information without any transformation. So God, would you just meet us here? May what your word speaks about who you are and what you've gone through and what you continue to do, may it sink within us. And may we carry that truth as we walk with you to the table, from the table, blessed by you in the midst of brokenness. Amen.